<laughs> thank you. Thank you, Arthur and Yannick. Glad you approve of the beard. It's coming along. Uh, <laughs> my wife is still putting up with it, so <laughs> we're, 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 doing, we're doing well. Um, okay. Excellent. So, um, uh, uh, w welcome, everybody, to class number 12 on the Return of the Shadow. And uh, I, I know a question that is probably on your minds is, are we going to actually finish this class ever? Um, I'm gone way past. Uh, I'm clearly headed, that is to say, way past where uh, I'd originally projected for this class. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna be posting. We're gonna be posting on the website a, a new official schedule, which I'm totally gonna keep to because, totally. But um, let me tell you what my goal is there. So in um, in the last week of um, April, the last week of April, I'm, my my family's going away again, and I'm certainly gonna not be able to uh, be in regular contact then. So I'm going to my goal. We're going to stop by, by that third week of April. We're done. No, no matter what, we're done. So I'm going to finish. Even if the last class has to be like five hours long, uh, I, we're going to we're going to be done uh, by, before I leave for that. So that's uh, that's the deadline that I'm up against. Uh, and we're going to be doing an election soon because, of course, we're going to pick our next two books. Um I, uh, uh, I I make a point of never stumping for, for books and let you guys choose. I'll do anything that you like. One thing I would like to say, though, is you're thinking about nominations. Um, I would be perfectly willing to talk about... I mean, and I've mentioned this before, to do sort of films or, or uh, uh, TV shows. Of course, it has to be within reason, right? We can't be like, I want to elect the entire run of the new Doctor Who or something like that. I mean, that's not reasonable. That would take us years to get through, and that's not quite fair, but... Um, but you know, if there were a particular series or a season or something like that, I would be uh, I'd be perfectly willing to uh, to do a to do a TV show series or something. Um, anyway, so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna see how that goes. Um, uh, but just want to make that suggestion. Uh, kind of kind of kind of throw that out there. Um, lots of books that I'd really love to talk about as well, of course. Um, so we'll see we'll see what you guys think about that. All right. Um, I so uh, uh, Tomas. No, no, we're not on phase three yet. No, no, we're still in phase two. Uh, tonight we're going to do chapters three and four of phase two. However, we're gonna that. That's right. I said it, and I'll say it again. We're gonna cover two chapters of the Return of the Shadow tonight. Um, I've uh, fallen short of that. We've done one chapter a class for the last three or four class sessions, but uh, uh, seriously, that's totally what we're going to do tonight. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, okay, uh, let's see. What else is I going to... Oh, yeah, I, I want to make sure. I think I've got everything going there that I need to have going. All right, sorry. Uh, I just... I'm always afraid I'm going to forget to hit one button or other and some sort of disaster is going to occur. But I think I've got everything got everything happening. Okay, um, so in this case, then let me start with uh, a couple... Uh, well, okay, one announcement uh, and then one reference back to a, a brief topic of discussion from an earlier class. Um, the announcement, what I mentioned before last week, the Hobbit Immersion Camp. I just wanted to, to sort of push that again. Uh, I'm really excited about this. We are so excited to be able to do a free, open, 
summer program for uh, for kids. We're you know uh, Mythgard and Signum. We're trying to expand our you know promotion of Tolkien related education uh, to the youth of the world, and and I'm I'm pretty excited about that. So um, I just wanted to share that with you. I last week I mentioned it to you guys, but we didn't have the flyer quite yet. We ended up releasing it like the next day. Um, so I'm, I'm posting here the link. Uh, the link that I'm posting is just to signumuniversity.org, and then uh, you just find it by scrolling down a tiny little bit to the events section, and you'll see the big uh, yellow. Hobbit Immersion Camp icon. Click on that and it'll take you to this page. On that page, click the Join This Event button uh, and it will it will download for you a, a, a printable copy of the flyer, which you can then print out and bring into your local library if you would like, in order to uh, uh, in order to see if your local library would be interested in participating. And if you have any questions or your librarians that you talk to have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us at the email address on that flyer, which is camp at signumu.org. So um, I'm, uh, uh, I'm pretty, we've been having some conversations with folks and I'm really excited to see that, uh, uh, to see that take off and hope lots of people uh, take advantage of the opportunity this summer. So um, cool. All right. Um, let's, uh, let's, uh, let, oh yeah, let's go with the other thing. Uh, so the, I, the other thing is several of you have responded to a challenge that I, uh, 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 sort of delivered off the cuff and I don't even remember exactly when it was, but remember we were talking about the verb fly and, uh, to, you know, how much Tolkien uses it. And I was sort of thinking like, how often does Tolkien even use that word, uh, to mean actually like propel oneself through the air with wings that the majority of the the uses of the word fly that I could that I came up with off the top of my head were almost all of them meaning flee or retreat um, uh, to run away very fast and uh, the um, so several of you uh, took me up on that challenge and and gave me some interesting results Um, uh, Tom Hillman counted them out Um, uh, Lee Smith did some wonderful work she not only counted them out but she gave me a a document with uh, with every sentence with the with the word fly. And I, I got a full fly concordance, um, all like hundred and some uh, instances of the word fly or versions of that uh, in the Lord of the Rings. Um, and uh, anyway, so the, and, but basically the results of that are the, to me the the really interesting results are it does of course turn out that he uses the word uh, some variant of fly about things like birds and bats and things like that. Um, uh, uh, which of course one would rather expect, um, but he actually the the actual the, the the uses of it for 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 airborne flight are actually less than fifty percent of the number of times he uses the word fly, which I think is pretty interesting. Given that uh, you know again the the problem again the problem that I so often find is that people. Uh, sort of will often kind of make the assumption that it kind of means the obvious definition is to propel oneself through the air with wings Um, but of course in Tolkien it's very far from the obvious obvious definition indeed I would even suggest that it's more than that because um, often some of those uh, uh, instances that were counted there were the word were were the noun flight um, uh, which uh, in the in the sense of like a, a flight of arrows, for instance, um, which I mean is technically like it's about the arrows flying through the air, so like it's 
kind of fair, but uh, the use of it as a kind of a, like a collective noun like that, um, describing a bunch of arrows as they're flying through the air. Um, it's not because e- it's not even that's certainly that's pretty far from using it as a verb actually. But whatever, it's fine. The point is, it's uh, it's under under fifty uh, percent of the of the usages, which I thought was 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 pretty cool. So it was uh, it was it was it was an awesome response. Uh, that you guys uh, uh, gave some many thanks, especially to Tom Hillman and Lee Smith for the work that they did uh, in looking at that. I, I thought it was really cool uh, to look at. So, all right, wanted to wanted to to, to kind of give credit for that. Let us move on then to um, uh, to yeah, Return of the Shadow. That it's that's what it is that we're discussing. Absolutely, yeah. I got so many windows, sometimes I can't find the things that I'm looking for, and then I'm like, where did I put that thing? Oh yeah, there's that thing. Okay. I found the thing that I was looking for. Okay. Namely, my most of things to remember to talk about. First thing that I wanted to say, uh, in connection both with really some of the stuff that we were getting at the beginning in chapter one and at the beginning of chapter two, but it's really relevant as we move into chapter three, into um, what will be three's company, um, and what in this draft is called delays are dangerous. Um, the, this whole question, of course, as Christopher points out, the really the only major thing that's still unresolved, the the primary way in which chapters. Uh, three and four, certainly, but even really, you could kind of argue one through four um, still really differs from the published version of the Fellowship of the Ring is which hobbits, you know, people's names and which hobbits are going to go with him. How many hobbits, in fact, are walking across the Shire? Of course, as you'll remember, in the second draft, there are still four. Um, he, Tolkien, keeps trying to get rid of Odo, but Odo just won't get won't be got rid of. He's been demoted from Took to Bulger already, but by golly, he's, he's, he's hanging on like grim death and staying in the narrative, right? Um, but anyway, so thinking about Bingo and his companions and, and, uh, and all that stuff, one thing that I, uh, one point that I thought was interesting, and I, I made my notes about this because I, had, I didn't get to it last time, and I wanted to make sure to mention it, um, a single word that I found, that, a single repeated word that I found super interesting uh, in this second draft of, uh, of chapters one and two is the word encouraged. How Bilbo encouraged some of his nephews, right? And how Bingo was his, uh, his, his most, the, the, the most encouraged of all of Bilbo's na- uh, nephews. You remember that? Um, that... Uh, that word encouraged really struck me as interesting. Interesting in the sense of um, uh, interesting in the sense of, of uh, why 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 that word? Because you see that word suggests because obviously the encouragement that we're talking about is the adventurous temperament that we clearly see in Bingo and in his friends in you know like these other nephews right um, and great nephews of Bilbo. Um, and this is something that's very noticeable, of course, as we contrast with The Hobbit. And, you know, we're thinking about the beginning of this and the beginning of The Hobbit as, as so many things in this text have invited us to do, thinking about this as the sequel to The Hobbit. Um, we'll remember that, of course, in Chapter 1 of The Hobbit, Bilbo's uh, adventurous streak, which he inherited from the Tooks, was called something queer in his makeup, right, that he got from the Tooks side. Um, there's no... Hobbit society, as it's 
very sort of indirectly and briefly depicted at the beginning of chapter one of The Hobbit, you know, at the beginning of An Unexpected Party, is, uh, uh, is fervently opposed to this kind of adventurousness, right? I mean, it really, it just, it has no truck with it at all. Um, I wouldn't think that the hobbits who respect Bilbo for his predictability and whose respect he loses when he returns from his journey would use the verb encouraged of Bilbo's influence on the younger generation of hobbits in his family, right? They would, I don't think they would say he's encouraging them. Uh, I mean, I would expect something like... Uh, uh, corrupted, maybe, or something, right? Uh, I mean, I don't know exactly what, you know, that he'd be a bad influence on them, but encouragement implies that it's there already, right? And that he's encouraging it, right? That he's, you know, so he is, uh, he's merely amplifying the thing which is already there. Now, since a bunch of them are Tooks, you could say, well, yeah, they've got the same thing there that Bilbo had there, right? So he's just kind of taking that and encouraging it. Um... Uh, and maybe that's all that it means, but still, the, the 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 insistent returning to that word is just something that that struck me as interesting and something as as kind of making me wonder um, in ways that we have already been wondering before. You know, what kinds of ways in which you know can we see Tolkien reconceiving Hobbit society? We can't, of course, assume it's exactly the same as in the Hobbit. We've already seen differences and spent some time looking at that those kinds of variations, and I think it's interesting. Um, that, that struck me as, uh, as as one sort of small and interested touch. Yeah, infected, Tony. Exactly. That it's more like the kind of word that I would have expected, right? Um, corrupted, infecting, something like that, um, uh, rather than rather than encouraging. Um, good, um, contributing to delinquency. Exactly, something like that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Good, good. Okay, um, well, let's uh, let's get into passages. We do have a couple still from uh, the end of uh, of chapter two here. Yes, I let him," said Gandalf. Uh, "Let him uh, 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 keep the ring, of course. Um, but at first, I did not even imagine that it was one of the nineteen rings of power. I thought I had got nothing more than I thought he had got nothing more dangerous than one of the lesser magic rings that were once more common, and were used, as their maker intended, chiefly by minor rogues and villains for mean wickednesses. I was not frightened of Bilbo being affected by their power, but when I began to suspect that the matter was more serious than that, I told him as much as my suspicions warranted. He knew that it came in the long run from the necromancer. But you must remember that there was the ring itself to reckon with. Even Bilbo could not wholly escape the power of the ruling ring. He developed a sentiment. He would keep it as a memento. Frankly, he became rather proud of his great adventure, and used to look at the ring now and again, and oftener as time went on, to warm his memory. It made him feel rather heroic, though he never lost his power of laughing at the feeling. But in the end, it got a hold of him in that way. He knew eventually that it was giving him long life, and thinning him. He grew weary of it. I can't abide it any longer, he said. But to get rid of it was not so easy. He found it hard to bring himself to it. If you think for a moment, it is not really very easy to get rid of the ring once you have got it. All right. Um, 
what do you notice here? This is, of course, Gandalf explaining why he did what he did and why he didn't do anything different than what he did, right? And, of course, we can see some pretty significant uh, differences between this explanation and the final explanation that Gandalf is going to give in almost exactly the same place uh, in the published text, right? Um, uh, yeah, the, Yana, I agree the number is a little strange. It's 19 rings of power um, uh, other than the ruling ring. So obviously he's not counting the ruling ring there. Right, um, I guess. Though why not? I'm not really 100 percent sure. But um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Um, the minor rings. You know, the the business with the the lesser rings here that were once more common. Um, I, I love the the reference to rogues and villains. Right. I mean, those were only used by like professional burglars and other such riffraff. Right. I mean, there's there's some obvious irony, and and I, I I have to think some kind of conscious humor on Gandalf's part. Right. At the expense, of, you know, sort of. Uh, lovingly at the expense of Bilbo there, right? Um, but of course, as he emphasizes, he's not afraid of Bilbo being affected by their power, right? He's not, because he didn't use it for mean wickednesses, right? Um, and so, you know, that was clear from the beginning, not only, of course, in his sparing of, his not murdering Gollum, which remember, we talked about that at the end of class last time, um, in the first edition of the text, Bilbo had far less temptation to murder Gollum. In fact, if he had killed Gollum, he'd have been going way out of his way just to stab this friendly, uh, rather, obsequi- uh, rather obsequious creature, which would have been a truly awful deed. No, where Bilbo really distinguishes himself is in his use of the ring uh, to try to make peace and to return the Arkenstone at the end, right? The, the whole... the. The, the Thief in the Dark chapter at the end of The Hobbit. Um, uh, he is not using his ring clearly for mean wickednesses. So that's, that's, that's clearly fine. So Bilbo would have been fine with that. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, James says it feels like the sentiment aspect is there in the published text too, just not stated uh, quite as explicitly. Um, he developed a sentiment he would keep it as a memento. Yeah, exactly. He 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 is proud. You know, he that that business again, which Gandalf does say, James, you're right, much more explicitly here uh, than he does in the published text. Um, his being rather proud of his great adventure, right? Um, and thinking of the ring as as being and connected with that and reflected with that. Notice Gandalf does not say here, like he says in the published text, that uh, he didn't. He took credit to himself for his his uh, his aging or his lack of aging, right? Um, this Gandalf doesn't mention that. Of course, the biggest change, what I would say, is the is the biggest change is that uh, Gandalf here in this version didn't suspect. Like uh, he he felt that he had uh, reason to believe that it was not one of the great rings of power, right? Whereas Gandalf in the published text says it was clear from the beginning that it must be one of the great rings, right? Um, so, it finally, in the end, Gandalf is going to say, I could exclude the, the, the minor rings out of hand from the very day one. Um, now, Gandalf is saying, oh yeah, I, I was assuming it was one of the minor rings. And he seems only uh, 
lately and slowly to come around to the idea that it was the ruling ring. But notice how he points out that his his hands are kind of tied, right? Um, he uh, he he. He can't take the ring from Bilbo by force, right? Yes, I let him. That's where Gandalf starts, right? Yeah, I let him keep it. But of course I let him keep it. Um, you know, it's... Um, it's... Um, he can't bring himself to get rid of it, but Gandalf isn't going to force it away from him. Again, that would put Gandalf in the position of, of uh, you know, committing a violent act in order to secure the ring. Even if he, Gandalf, doesn't mean to keep it for himself, that's that's pretty bad. And Gandalf's already made it really clear. It's one thing that Tolkien's been pretty clear about so far. The actions that you take in order to acquire the ring have a big impact on the relationship with which you begin the ring. And if Gandalf had taken the ring from Bilbo under those conditions, what hope would he have, really? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Kimber says, uh, what does Gandalf mean if you think for a moment? I think that's just an acknowledgement. If I'm remembering correctly, this is after... Um, the business about throwing it in the fire. So I think that he, Bingo, has already shown, um, has already will have some inkling of uh, the difficulty, and of course can then project it backwards to Bilbo having it for for decades. Um, so it was pity that stayed Gandalf's hand. No, it was it was wisdom that sta- that stayed Gandalf's hand. I would say. I mean, yes, of course he showed pity for Bilbo, but it wasn't like he would have killed Bilbo if not for uh, the upwelling of pity within him. Um, yeah, yeah, Stephanie, I agree. I really like that line. He never lost his power at laughing at the feeling. This may show the possible limitations of the effect of the ring on Bilbo. I agree. Um, that seems to be the kind of thing that Gandalf is talking about when he says, "I was not frightened of Bilbo being affected by their power." That's why he doesn't even consider the minor rings a threat, right? Remember how much more cautious Gandalf is in the published text, right? That even the minor rings are perilous for mortals, right? Um, but um, but he's not all that he's not all that worried about uh, about Bilbo, right? And I th- that power of laughing at it, I think, is a really important thing. Um, okay, so so we can see. It's interesting to me that Gandalf notice the shift that Tolkien is going to make. Tolkien is going to push Gandalf's realization that the ring is the ring of power is the ruling ring earlier. Right. Originally, the story is it takes Gandalf legitimately a long time to realize, holy cow, this is the ruling ring. Right. Um, in the published text, he's going to push that back further. So if there's a if there's a tension, which obviously there is, right? Gandalf has to give this explanation because Frodo's a- or excuse me, Bingo is asking, why did you let him keep it? Right. Um, so that question, why did you let him keep it? is, of course, the one that everybody still asks. And I've talked about this before, and I talked about this a good deal in my Exploring the Lord of the Rings class when we were talking about those passages. But uh, um, but that's, that's just it, right? Gandalf is answering that question. Notice that the changes that Tolkien makes in re- later revisions actually make the answer harder, 
You see what I mean? It makes it stickier. Um, if Gandalf's answer is, well, it took me a long time even to, even to figure it out, right? I, I wasn't even suspicious for a really long time. That kind of makes it easier to understand, right? Um, but Tolkien, far from trying to hedge that question, actually pushes it further and further, um, makes it even more and more of an issue, which I think is really cool. I think that's really fascinating. Gandalf knew it was a great ring, and he had some uncertainty, right? He had... But you know, but he had he had this feeling that he didn't know you know this 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 shadow on his heart, right? Um, he has this conviction that he can't confirm, but he's worried about it, and he doesn't know what else to do. And in the end, as he describes here, there's nothing else. There's no alternative to letting Bilbo keep it, right? And it's clearly the best thing for the ring. Um, it's the wisest thing to do in the end. Um, but uh, anyway, so. It's uh, um, it's interesting to see the direction that uh, Tolkien is moving there. Um, yeah, yeah. Arthur says Hobbit Gandalf would have needed would need to have it spelled out for him. This is part of the evolution from the guy who couldn't read Elvish to the very smart fellow we know and love. Um, yeah, yeah, Arthur, you mean like the uh, the runes that he couldn't read on the on the 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 swords and things that he get Elrond to translate for him? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Gandalf does progress a very great deal from the Hobbit to the Lord of the Rings, and of course, that's another thing for us to be looking at. Of course, it's something we didn't really talk about last week uh, when looking at Chapter Two, um, but is important to sort of acknowledge, right? As we go by, Gandalf's status is changing. Um, this is much more than the little old man. He's already much more than the little old man than he was in The Hobbit. Um, his stature is is, um, is 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 greatly increasing as time goes on. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Bilbo's perspective. I cannot think how Bilbo put up with it for so long. And also, I must say, I cannot help wondering why he passed it on to me. This is this is Bingo, of course, talking. I knew, of course, that he had it, though I was the only one who did or does know. But he spoke of it jokingly, and on the on, and on the only two or three occasions when I ever caught him using it, he used it more or less as a joke, especially the last time. Bilbo would. And when your fate has bestowed on you such perilous treasures, it is not a bad way to take them, as long as you can do so. But as for passing it on to you, he did so only because he thought you were safe, safe not to misuse it, safe not to let it get into evil hands, safe from its power for a while, and safe as an unknown and unimportant hobbit in the heart of the quiet and easily overlooked shire from the enemy." Okay, so notice another change here, right? Bilbo, when he hands the ring over, and we saw this before, right? Bilbo, when he hands the ring over, knows, right? He knows that uh, the he knows about Sauron, that it's that Sauron's ring, and that you know the enemy is going to be hunting for it. So when he hands it to Frodo, he knows this, right? Um, and that's a uh, that's a big change, right? Bilbo had no suspicion about the nature of the ring when he hands it over to Frodo in the published text. Um, uh, so this is... Uh, it's a fascinating kind of position that um, it puts Bilbo in. And I would say... I'm tempted to say, although it might seem like a sketchier decision, like, well, I'm going to leave the enemy to hunt after Frodo. Bye, Frodo! See you later! Right now. Or bingo, excuse me. Um, that might seem like a, a kind, of a <clears throat> kind of a shadier thing for Bilbo to do. 
I guess I would actually characterize the Bilbo that's being described here as actually being of, of greater stature, sort of more wise. Um, because he recognizes, yeah, on the one hand, yeah, he's kind of giving his heir and beloved nephew Bingo the shaft by giving him this ring which the enemy is hunting for, but he knows that he can't, he shouldn't have it any longer, right? that it's starting to get control over him, that it's starting to influence him in dangerous ways, and that he needs to let it go, but that Bingo, his nephew and heir, is the best and most appropriate person to have it, that he will be safe from it, and that it will be safe in his hands, right? So uh, the passing on of the ring, the, the, the significance of that legacy. Remember the Gandalf in the published text saying, though he little thought how important it would prove, right? That is... Uh, it, let me start at the beginning of the sentence. Gandalf says to Frodo, um, Bilbo made no mistake when choosing his heir, though he little thought how important it would prove. Right? Bilbo does the right thing, but he does the right thing by accident. Right? It's just sort of, it works out that way. It works out well, as if there were some other power at work. Right? But it's not Bilbo's power at work. Um, this is not uh, the choice of a wise hobbit who can now look down and see that his... Uh, um, uh, you know, can 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 sort of look into the, not look into the future literally, but you know, consider the future and acknowledge both his own weakness and his error's strength, and uh, make a, a a good assessment and and uh, uh, the the wisest possible decision for the people of Middle Earth. Uh, that's just that's just not what we see from Bilbo in the published text, but it is what we see here. Um, so again, it might seem like a little harsher, uh, you know. Um, for um uh for 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 bingo's situation right um but i think it's um it's and he arthur thinks it's not very flattering uh opinion of bingo well i don't know i mean unknown and unimportant hobbit uh no that's good when you're talking about unknown and unimportant to the enemy right that's good um but uh yeah yeah um Yes, James Liback says the published text gives that insight and decision-making all to Gandalf rather than Bilbo. Well, James and I would also add, and to chance, right? Or providence, uh, really. Um, yes, yes. Um, see, Yana, I don't know if I can agree with Darker. So Yana says uh, Bilbo knowing does make him seem more more intelligent and wise, um, but it puts his pawning it off to, to, to Bingo in a darker light. I don't know if I, I'd say darker. I, again, because of because of the stuff we get down to here, like the stuff that Gandalf assures Bingo of here, right? He did so only because he thought you were safe, right? So this is not like, it's not like an inheritance with a booby trap. Oh, did I not mention that? Sorry. Like, I mean, to some extent, that's kind of what happens, but he's not really just setting him up. Um, he's legitimately, um, he's legitimately... He only does it because he believes that Bingo's going to be safe. Um, so I'm okay with it for that reason. Um, yeah, yeah. Good. Um, excellent. Good. Stephanie says the last sentence here really gives great insight as to why hobbits in particular are the best, if not the only cha ta uh, choice for the great task to be done. Um yeah, yeah, the 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 safety of the I I agree. Both of those things, that is the safety their safety from the ring and the ring safe 
safety in their hands. I agree. The, both of those factors remain operable throughout the published translations. I, I do agree with that. Um, yeah. <laughs> Stephen still wants to think about, you know, Bilbo writing the tags on the gifts and, uh, you know, maybe he's, uh, he's playing a joke on, on, on Bingo here. Well, Stephen, all I would say is that if he is playing a joke on Bingo, that's perfect, right? That's the best possible way to hand off the ring is in a joke, right? Jokes are, 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 the, are the safest way to use the ring, right? We know that already, so it's all cool. That's, so that's no counter-argument. That just, that just, if that were true, that just reinforces it, really. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Tony asks why the pause before the word enemy if, Bilbo, if Bingo already knows uh, about uh, Sauron or, you know, sort of the, you know, Sauron and the necromancer. Um, it's clearly not Sauron, right, uh, Tony, that he was about to say because he already said the definite article before the pause, right, from the... I have to think necromancer was going to be the word that he was going to use next. Why does he pause and replace that with enemy? I don't know exactly. I mean, he has already freely alluded to the necromancer in, like, the previous paragraph, right? He knew that it came in the long run from the necromancer. Um, it does seem to me a little puzzling why Gandalf would hesitate um, before saying necromancer here. Was he going to say Dark Lord? But why wouldn't he want to say that either? I, I, I don't really know. I don't, I don't think I get that, Tony. If anybody has a theory, I'd be happy to hear it. Um, by the way, which reminds me, as we are about to transition into chapters three and four, there are a bunch of things. This is going to be a little motif of tonight's class. Stuff I don't understand, because there's a bunch of stuff in these two chapters uh, that I find rather puzzling and that I, I'm quite... I, I come here hoping. Um, I, I come to class not... Um, to bestow wisdom, but to uh, but to find it. Uh, so I hope that you'll you'll help me find it. Um, uh, see, Tony, I don't think it can't be like a Voldemort situation that he doesn't want to say the name out loud for a couple of reasons. One, he's been saying it right without any pauses. Uh, so why he should get all cherry about it at this point, I can't understand. Uh, secondly, we've never seen anybody do that before. I mean, we're gonna get something like that, right? The Gondorians. Um, and, you know, when when we get to Minas Tirith, we'll find you know Baragond does a pulls a kind of a you know a Voldemort ish sort of situation. You know, the men of Minas Tirith don't name him. It's different from the Voldemort situation in Harry Potter, but but it's at least it kind of sounds like it, right? So it's, it's at least clearly reminiscent of it. Um, but we've never gotten even a whiff of that with Gan- with Gandalf before. He's been talking. He's been talking about him all day, right? So why does he why does he stop now? Um, uh, Ah, okay, see, James, I like that theory. I like that theory. Okay, here's James Stevens' theory. Uh, James says, Enemy sounds singular, but Gandalf may already think that there could be agents of the enemy, plural. Uh, and that might scare Bingo more than one enemy. So, um... Uh, I like that idea. Uh, that that at least kind of make, gives an explanation. It's not him just avoiding a name. It's him actually shifting what he was going to say. Um from the spies of the enemy or from the enemies or from the agents of the enemy or something like that. And maybe he pauses before he, he, he stops himself saying that, saying that so as not to freak out bingo, uh, 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 extremely. Maybe, maybe, um, that frankly makes more sense to me 
than that he's just trying to avoid saying the necromancer, which again, he's been saying all day long. So I, that I can't understand at all. Um, but so, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm willing to accept that as a, as a, as a proposition. Anyway, okay, let's move on into chapter three, and we will quickly come to grips with one of the first things I don't understand. Okay. The chapter's called The Laser Dangerous, right? And the, the sort of the reveal of that name, that comes up in the conversation with Gildor at the end. Remember that in one of the versions of the conversation with Gildor and Glorian, um, you know, uh, Gildor's like, now, when, were, when did Gandalf tell you to leave? And Bingo's like, well, I was supposed to leave kind of in the middle of the summer. And he's like, and why didn't you? Well, because I kind of wanted to hang out in the Shire. Right, they're talking about Bingo's two halves and his desire to go and his desire to stay, and we'll get to that later on. Um, but Gildor's kind of taking him to task. You know, he's, he's, he's like, man, delays are dangerous, right? You put, admit it, you put it off, right? You procrastinated leaving the Shire because you didn't want to leave the Shire, and now danger's upon you, and you've got nobody to blame it yourself, right? I mean, that's kind of the 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 message that Gilder is giving him there at the end. But remember, this is what we get at the beginning of the chapter. Gandalf is left, right? And he just kind of takes off. There's very there's less explanation in this draft than there is in the final published text. He just kind of wanders off. Gandalf was supposed to come to the party, but did not turn up. Bingo waits. This is a this is a summary. Bingo waits till Friday, September twenty third, but foolishly did not wait any longer, as Sackville Baggins is threatened to turn him out. But sets off on Friday night, gives out he is going to stay with Mary and return to his Brandy Buck relations. And you'll remember I didn't quote it, but you'll remember that uh, in w- one of the scenes when Gandalf is leaving. He actually says to Bingo, don't leave without me, right? Make sure you wait for me. So that when when Bing, when we see Bingo standing there, like Frodo is in the published text, you know, like the evening of the party, kind of hopping back and forth, right, on, on one foot, like waiting for Gandalf to show up, he's obeying Gandalf's injunction, right? Gandalf had said, like, dude, wait for me. Don't leave. I think you might need my presence, you know, my company on the road. So Bingo's just doing what he says. So, as I say, here's the first thing that I don't get. The beginning of this chapter and the end of the chapter seem to be in contradiction, which is fine. Tolkien's still working through things. But I want to make sure that I'm right about that. am, Am I missing something? Do you guys see any obvious way to reconcile these two things? I mean, I guess you could say, right, that... Um, Bingo's already made the decision to stay on into the autumn, right? So by the time Gandalf leaves, which seems to be comparatively soon, like, you know, he doesn't leave in, like, April or something. Um, You know, we're getting closer to the birthday already. So staying through towards, you know, into the late summer, early autumn has already been Bingo's choice. And so kind of, you know, the the, the die is already cast as far as that's concerned. And Gandalf is just saying, all right, I'll I'll be back in just a few days. Wait for me. Um, uh, Doesn't suggest Gandalf is dictating a bigger picture policy of waiting a long time. Um, I guess that would kind of reconcile the two. It just kind of seems to me odd that Gandalf is telling him explicitly not to go. Um, Gandalf, of course, in the published text is telling him, "I am, uh, you know, I'll, 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 I'll be back by the birthday party at the latest." And he does say, "I think you might need my company on the road." Um, and this, of course, is what makes Frodo wait and wait and wait for him until the last possible minute. Uh, but he he doesn't 
say, don't leave without me, right? I mean, he, he, he's, he's encouraging Frodo to leave no later than the time that he had planned, even... Of course, he doesn't think he's not going to show up. Gandalf doesn't, of course. Any thoughts? Any ideas? Other than that, you know, the possibility of... Me- you know, I'm just trying to figure, to figure out, is this something where we see Tolkien's... Um, Tolkien's mind changing over the course of writing the chapter, um, having the waiting be... Because I, I, I could see that happening, right? Um, Bingo waits at the beginning because Gandalf tells him to, but then as he's traveling across the Shire, that whole, like, half of me is still in love with the Shire and, and not eager to let it go, that thing emerges during the landscape descriptions and stuff. I was just talking about these passages in Chapter 3 of the published text last night in the Exploring the Lord of the Rings class. Um and in our field trip when we traced the steps within uh, the Lotro game. But anyway, um, uh, so so we get those moments, and then that leads to then the conversation with Gildor and Gildor's acknowledgement of his two different sides, and then him coming around to say, look, the, the Baggins-ish side, though that's not, not of course, Gildor's word, the, the, uh, the, 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 the hobbit half of you that really loves the Shire and wants to stay is like, has been holding you back, right? And you shouldn't have listened to it. Um, I can see that kind of growing. Um, and of course, the, the chapter is titled Delays Are Dangerous, which seems the more counterintuitive at the very beginning. Um, but of course, Christopher does point out that that name is kind of penciled in later on, so it wasn't necessarily the question that he um, began with at the very beginning. So I guess the theory that I would go with is that idea of this, um, of Bingo's reluctance to leave being something that kind of grew over the course, you know, sort of grew organically as we see so often over the course of the chapter, so that by the end of the chapter that really becomes the theme, but it wasn't a theme that was anticipated at the beginning of the of this draft of this chapter. Um, that's my best theory. But let me know if you have any better theories that might, uh, that might explain this. Um, or maybe it's not even a contradiction and I'm making more of it than needs to be. Perfectly willing to believe that, too. Um, this passage, I thought, was really interesting, especially in connection with what we've been talking about, about the relationship between this book and this the book of which it's the sequel, right? All those links and tags uh, to The Hobbit that we keep seeing. Well now, said Bingo, do you know I have mostly thought just about going and have never decided on the direction? Of course, his conversation with Gandalf we're talking about here. For where shall I go, and by what shall I steer, and what is to be my quest? This will indeed be the opposite of Bilbo's adventure, setting out without any destination, and to get rid of a treasure not to find one, and to go there but not come back again, likely enough, added Gandalf grimly. That I know, said Bingo, pretending not to be impressed. But seriously, in what direction shall I start? Towards danger, but not too rashly, nor too straight towards it, answered Gandalf. Make first for Rivendell, if you will, if you will at least take that much advice. After that we shall see, if you ever get there. The road is not as easy as it was. Rivendell, said Bingo. Very good. That will please Sam. He did not add that it pleased him, too, and that, though he had not decided... He had often thought of making for the house of Elrond, if only because he thought that perhaps Bilbo, after he had become free again, had chosen that way too. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, Sarah, I puzzled over pretending not to be impressed. Uh, of course, my first reaction to that is like pretending not to be impressed by Gandalf's wit, right? You know, like, <laughs> it's like, you know, Gandalf comes out with a there and not back again crack and, and, and Bingo's like, oh man, that was really clever. I wish I had thought of that, right? But I don't think that's what he talks about. I think impressed, meaning um, pretending not to be imp- to it the statement has made an impression on him, like an emotional impression upon him, and he's pretending not to be impressed by that, like not to be affected by it. Um, notice Gandalf is a serious downer through this whole conversation. Um, uh, to go there but not come back again, likely enough, said Gandalf grimly. You're probably going to die on the road, bingo. And then later on, right? Um after that, we shall see. If you ever get there, the road is not as easy as it was, right? Yeah, you're probably not going to make it. I mean, Gandalf isn't openly pessimistic, but he is, He is. yes, Tony, not terribly encouraging is certainly a good way to phrase it. Um, uh, not terribly encouraging about Bingo's chances of success or survival. Um, and... Um, and Stephen, you are absolutely right. Uh, Stephen Cover points out that this is actually quite like the Hobbit Gandalf. Um, remember the Hobbit Gandalf, as Stephen is reminding us, says, uh, um, uh, "Remember when uh, uh, when Thorin is ta- when when Thorin says." Uh, they're going to get to the Misty Mountains, and that's where the troubles, our troubles, are going to begin. And uh, and Gandalf says, "Long before that, if I know anything about the roads east, right?" So, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. It is it is kind of like uh, the Gandalf that we see in the Hobbit at times, um, but um, but exactly, Brandon. Uh, in the published text, it's Frodo who suggests that he's not coming back again, and Gandalf is much more encouraging. Right, is much gentler at the very least uh, with Frodo throughout this. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah. So, so that's certainly an interesting difference. And I think so. So again, I think that Sarah is what he means by uh, uh, pretending not to be impressed. That he's like he's trying to he's trying to make as if Gandalf's statement didn't really affect him. Um, that I know, but seriously, in what direction he's trying to kind of pass it off. Um, which is interesting. I mean, that kind of gap between Bingo and Gandalf um, is important, I think. We don't see that between Frodo and, and, and Gandalf. Frodo trusts Gandalf more and has reason to trust Gandalf more, less so with Bingo and uh, Gandalf. It seems to me, Sarah, to put a, a, a greater significance on the references that the narrator gives here, as in the published text. But again, I, I hear, I, I think they're, they're weightier here in this version. Um, about when Bingo is withholding information from Gandalf, right? How he doesn't tell him about his desire to uh, to find Bilbo. In the published text, it just sort of sounds like it was so personal to Frodo that he was kind of shy about sharing it. Here, it begins to be like, okay, wizard, I'm playing my own game here, though, right? I'm going to keep my own counsel and uh, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go along with you. But really, at the end of the day, you know. I'm calling my own shots here. It's more what I mean. It's it seems more in that direction, um, in this version of the text, um, and some of these things really seem to me uh, 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 to 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 really amplify that. Um, yeah, good. Um, excellent. Um, and and I agree, Brian. Um, 
Uh, Brian Dimmick points out that Bingo hasn't seemed reluctant to take Gandalf's advice, and he's been looking to Gandalf for advice. Absolutely. I, I, I don't want to overstate the case. Um, he clearly does look to Gandalf for advice. It just, they don't seem as close, even if only because Gandalf himself doesn't seem as friendly, you know, doesn't seem as uh, tender, even. Um, I mean, these kinds of cracks, you know, if you ever get there. Uh, can you imagine uh, uh, the published Gandalf saying that to Frodo, right? He just doesn't talk uh, like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I don't, Sarah, I don't think impressed there bears that meaning. Sarah's thinking about the the, 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 the older meaning of impressed. Um, that is like to be pressed into service or like, you know, the, the impressment of slaves. I don't think so. I don't think so. That, that I think would be too far. Like, I'm going to pretend I'm not being, you know, uh, uh, forcibly recruited here. Um, and Because uh, to me, the main reason, Sarah, is that I can't make pretending work. That I mean, like, I'm trying to fool myself that I'm not being pressed into, into duty. Um, I, I don't think so. Um, I, I'm, I'm highly doubtful of that. Yeah, good, good. Um, yeah. Good, good, yeah. Brandon points out that Gandalf does seem to be implying that Bingo is not taking his advice, or Brandon, I would add, um, Gandalf isn't assuming that Bingo is going to take his advice, right? Um, Make for Rivendell if you will at least take that much advice, right? Um, does show that Gandalf knows that Bingo is still kind of calling his own shots to some extent. Um, and one wonders, Brandon, if that also is connected to Gandalf's injunction, don't leave without me, right? Um, you know, if there's not just a I really want to be super sure that you're safe, so don't leave without me, right? Or is this a I ought to keep an eye on you, right? You better not leave without me. I mean, again, I, I'm not saying it's it's all the way in that direction, but there seems to be a, a bit of a tang of that here, doesn't there? Um, uh, maybe, maybe just a bit. Um, but, but again, I really enjoy the way in which this passage sets up, as I said in my subtitle there, uh, sets up this book as like the anti-sequel. Um, just thinking about all these connections, the ways in which um, the early stages of this story have been really explicitly connecting to The Hobbit, um, explicitly po- positioning itself um, as you know a sequel, the next in the series to The Hobbit. Um, this is one of the first times we see this is like pushing back against that almost, right? Don't expect what you got from The Hobbit. This is not you know uh, this is this is this is the opposite. Uh, of Bilbo's adventure, right? And you begin to see that's kind of maybe true in more ways than one, right? Not just um, not just in plot terms. But, uh, yeah, Stephen, I, I do agree. I think that there is more mistrust between people in these earlier versions. Um, that does seem to be important. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Good. And I agree, John, that the, 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 the lack of, uh, John Caldwell points out, the lack of the, that sort of affectionate, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, oh, oh, Gandalf, dearest of friends. Yeah, he, he doesn't address him like that uh, in, this, in this text. We just don't see that relationship. Okay. 
Now, the controversial decision, controversial that is Tolkien having a controversy with himself. We have the um, the possibility of shifting the presence with their um, uh, witty and uh, cutting labels shifted to Bingo's departure instead of Bilbo. So we're gonna do we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna insult uh, old Hobbit ladies who give advice and uh, beautiful young Baggins girls and things like that. Uh, we're gonna do that in chapter three instead of in the beginning of chapter three instead of the end of chapter one. Let's read what Christopher says about this. On the manuscript, my father wrote later that this variant, depending on shortening in chapter one and the transference of parting gifts, etc., to three, was now rejected. The shortening of chapter one proposed is, in fact, the short variant of the story of the aftermath of Bilbo's party. As I noted there, the entire business of the presence and the invasion of Bag End was in this variant removed, for it was now to be transferred to Bingo's departure or at least was under the option of being so transferred. Thus a further twist is given to the serpentine history of this element in the Lord of the Rings, for what is involved uh, for what, what is involved is not, of course, a simple reversion to the story uh, as it was at the end of the first phase of a long-expected party where the gifts were also bingos, not bilbos. The new idea was that the gifts, the invasion of Bag End, the ejection of the hobbits excavating the pantry, and the fight with Sancho Proudfoot, his adversary here being Cosimo Sackville Baggins, supported by his mother, who broke her umbrella on Sancho's head. Um... Uh, I, by the way, I think, obviously, the major loss that we have in not shifting the invasion of Bag End at the beginning of Chapter 3 is that we don't get, like, the f- having the fight between Frodo and Sancho instead of having it be between Cosimo, who's going to be Lotho. That's Lotho's original name is Cosimo Sackville Baggins. Uh, so pimply f- pimply-faced Cosimo wrestling with Sancho Proudfoot while Lobelia Sackville Baggins breaks her umbrella over his head. That's actually kind of awesome, and I'm sort of sorry that we lost that, but it's all right. That all this took place not after the great birthday party, which was now Bilbo's, but after Bingo's own discreet birthday party before his departure. It is possible, and even probable, that my father's intention in this was to reduce the element of Hobbiton comedy that confronts the reader at the outset, and introduce sooner, in ancient history, the very much weightier matters that had come into being since a long-expected party was first written. Okay, so, let's sum up here. What, what's, what's, um, um, what's going on? Um, <laughs> Stephen Cover says, isn't her umbrella filled with silver spoons? Uh, that would really hurt. Um, yeah, yeah, it's true, Tony. We don't get to see the full fury of Lobelia on stage. We hear, of course, the wonderful story about her going for, uh, for some of Sharky's brigands with her umbrella later on. But, um, uh, but you know, it's, um, uh, it, it would have been cool to see her deploy the umbrella. Um, anyhow. The issue here, right, is, okay, so do we do this at the end of chapter one, or do we do, we do this at the beginning of chapter three? Christopher's interpretation here, his, 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 the reason that he posits that Tolkien was considering the shift, why would he want to move it away from the end of chapter one to the beginning of chapter three? Um, well, one reason that Christopher doesn't say, but which seems to me like kind of an obvious thing, it was always associated, that is, the giving away of those gifts and the clearing out of the whole was always associated with the sale, right? I mean, it, 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 when, 
back in the day, right back in the first four drafts of chapter one, um, the the hole was being sold at the end, and that's when the packages were being given away with their labels, right? Um, so really all that does is shift it forward. Um, Bilbo's no longer the giver, but it's still distributing the furniture and everything after the house is being, or as the house is being sold. So, um, you know, rather than giving all this, because in some ways it's kind of counterintuitive, right? For um, Bilbo to say to Frodo, um, hey, uh, I'm giving you everything I own, except like this huge pile of furniture and gifts and stuff, which I'm giving away, right? So I'm giving away all this stuff and you can have whatever's left. Now, it's it's fine. It works fine in the published text to do it that way. But you can see why it would make sense that Tolkien would be like, well, maybe let's keep that at the final departure of the Bagginses from Bag End, right? But the reason, the primary reason that Christopher sa- uh, suggests is that he thinks his dad was contemplating, I want to get to ancient history sooner, right? Um, and if you think about it, there is kind of a disruption, right? The presents do form a bit of a disruption at the end of chapter one. Disruption, I say, because we had the conversation between Gandalf and Bilbo back in chapter one, right? Um, Where the two of them are talking about the ring and Bilbo's giving up the ring. And then we uh, have the presents. And then we move on into ancient history or into the shadow of the past. Um, So it does kind of maintain the like more solemn mood right to go right from Bilbo talking about giving up the ring to ancient history and bingo learning the truth about the ring right and not having the you know the hobbiton comedy break out in between to kind of distract from that there's a certain sense there right um so yeah okay fine um, that makes a certain amount of sense. <laughs> but what Christopher doesn't address that I would be really tempted to say is, look, um, uh, I I acknowledge shifting the presence from the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 3 would make chapter 1 into chapter 2 flow much more steadily, you know, with the solemn stuff. But it's still a disruption where it is. It's a disruption either place, right? So which is more important, flowing right from B- uh, Bilbo giving up the ring into Bingo learning about the ring, or flowing right from Bingo learning about the ring to Bingo leaving, right? Without the massive interjection of Hobbit and comedy in the middle there. So honestly, I don't see much as gained there. If anything, of course, I think the final decision that Tolkien made makes more sense to say if we're going to interject Hobbit and comedy, why don't we keep it at the end of chapter one and not just jump straight into ancient history? Because the fact is, there is a gap. Even in this draft, there's the we, we still have the 17-year gap uh, between Bilbo's party uh, and Bingo's departure. So <clears throat> there is an interruption, right? There is a gap. And that, of course, is the function that that uh, scene seems to play in the published text. Um, we get real serious, right, with the confrontation uh, in the published text between Bilbo and Gandalf. Um, remember, that is one of the things that's still high on the list of stuff that's still not like the published text yet, right, is the fact that Bilbo doesn't need any help in giving up the ring the first time through. The first time, meaning the second draft. Anyway, um, so uh so yeah, we 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 the, 
we're kind of shifting back out of that to funny, uh, to Hobbiton comedy, right? Which then enables us to start chapter two thinking about the society and Frodo's relationship with it, and then eventually, you know, sort of learning more as we go as we go along. So, um, uh, I think it's I, again, I think it could kind of work either way, um, uh, for good or for bad, arguably. Um, of course, you know, the only perfect solution to this problem, if you're worried about this, would be to cut the presence entirely, but Tolkien can't do that, right? Um, we've got to have, we've got to insult old advice writing ladies, and we won't, we can't have it any other way. All right. The Wraith Sightings. We get all the Wraith sightings in one place in this draft, right? So they've just seen the Black Rider, and Bingo is just like, I've, there's, I've, you know, I've, uh, nothing like that's ever been seen in the Shire before, right? There are some men sometime down in the, 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 they're not called the Farthings yet, but down in the southern parts of the Shire, they've had some trouble with men lately, Bingo has just said, but nothing like this has ever been seen in the Shire. And Frodo pipes up. I have, though, said Frodo, who has listened intently to Bingo's description of the Black Rider. I remember now something I had quite forgotten. I was walking away up in the North Moor, you know, right up on the northern borders of the Shire, this very summer, when a tall black-cloaked rider met me. He was riding south, and he stopped and spoke, though he did not seem able to speak our language very well. He asked me if I knew whether there were any folk called Baggins in those parts. I thought it very queer at the time, and I had a queer, uncomfortable feeling, too. I could not see any face under his hood. I said no, not liking the look of him. As far as I heard, he never found his way to Hobbiton and the Baggins, co- and the Baggins country. "'Begging your pardon,' put in Sam suddenly. "'But he found his way to Hobbiton all right, him or another like him.' Anyway, it's from Hobbiton as this here Black Rider comes, and I know where he's going, too. And this, of course, is where we get the account of the conversation with Gavar Gamgee, right? So the Black Rider has been seen both in Hobbiton by Gavar Gamgee and up on the North Moors by Frodo Took, which is was back there at the very beginning, right? Back in the original draft of this chapter. Um... Uh, when it um, when it when it went back through, so um, <laughs> yeah. Well, see, Arthur, Arthur's saying, you know, how long does it take a Nazgul to get from the North Moor to Hobbiton? Um, <clears throat> in, in, Arthur's uh, suggesting they need better horses, because um, of course, Arthur, you'll notice, uh, Frodo took apparently on foot, beat him substantially, <laughs> right uh, down there. Um, but again. He's wandering around. He has no idea where he's going. Um, And it's interesting to me. Remember when we first encountered this scene? It seemed to be another piece of evidence that Tolkien had in the faintest idea. Um, uh, um, That uh, um, Tolkien had any idea where the Black Riders were coming from, right? Um... And uh, so the fact that he was having them come down from the north was like, is, is there like a like an Angmar, you know, connection? Is this, uh, um, you know, where is Mordor? We didn't even really know or have much indication. This was still back when we were thinking they might be Barrow Whites, right? Um, he still keeps this here, even though Mordor, you'll remember, has not only moved west, it's now definitively moved south. Um, but that seems to me the point, and Arthur speaks to your point as well, the, it emphasizes how the Black Riders are, are, are 
moving around by trial and error, right? They're, uh, um, they have no idea how to go about finding uh, the Shire, how to go about finding Bagginses in the Shire. Um, and the fact that they finally do is a, you know, a, a, a testimony to their perseverance, um, but, uh, but no real surprise. Uh, no real surprise, actually. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, notice a few things about this still the conceptions of the wraiths, right? We've, we, 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 we've, we've gotten a lot about the wraiths. Um, Tolkien has thought a lot about wraiths and, and, and sort of wraith, uh, you know, sort of the philosophy of wraiths, right? And the whole, the two sides and the, the wraith world and all that kind of stuff. And the, we've gotten the Morgul weapon and all those things uh, in the last draft from, the, from Weathertop, between Weathertop and Rivendell. Um, but notice what we still don't have yet, right? There's no glimmer of the black breath. Um, it gives Frodo Took a queer, uncomfortable feeling to talk to the Black Rider, but no worse than that, right? Um, and uh, his only reaction to the Black Rider's conversation is that he didn't seem able to speak our language very well, right? So, in other words, he just takes him for a foreigner, um, there's nothing, uh, apart from his queer, uncomfortable feeling, there's nothing too creepy about him, right? You know, there's no hissing, there's no sniffing, there's no indications of I'm creepy and non-human, right? It's, um, he just seems like a foreigner. And so it's queer, he th- thinks it very queer that there's this foreigner up in the North Farthing coming, you know, man coming down uh, south into the Shire asking for Baggins. That's weird, right? But, uh, um, but again, not necessarily monstrous, exactly, and there doesn't seem to be anything monstrous uh, about it. Um, <laughs> Brian uh, Dimmick says, Are we supposed to think that hobbits do a bad job at remembering and sharing rather important information with their friends? Um, yeah, I mean, I have to say this is, it's hard, uh, this is difficult. It's hard for me to um, imagine that Frodo took never mentioned this, right? Uh, that he came down south and at no point did he think to tell his friend Bingo, like, oh, yeah, there was this weird foreigner up in the North Far... Uh, not in the North Farthing, up on the North Moors, asking questions about you, right? Look, looking for Bagginses. Isn't that weird, right? I mean, you'd think at least this would be something you'd tell at the pub, right? You know, uh, uh, when everyone's sitting around with a pint. Um, but um, anyway, you know, it's... Um, uh, it's now, Dennis. You're right that he couldn't. He he could see no face under the hood, um, but that only suggests that he's very secretive, right? That he's 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 wearing a you know a very deep cowl and keeping his face shadowed. Again, it's one of the th- one of the things that uh, makes it seem very queer, right? And could even by itself explain his queer, uncomfortable feeling that he's talking to this guy um, whose face he can't see and who never shows his face, right? That's at the very least. Uh, an unfriendly, if not an actively creepy thing to do, right? But again, it doesn't sound, um, it doesn't sound like anything supernatural, anything monstrous, as I say. Um, 
Yeah, Tony suggests that it's more of an indication of their naivete and not really understanding what's the important news and what isn't. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true of Sam in some ways there, but uh, but it's hard to say that about Frodo Took here, I think. Um, again, mostly because this is obviously the kind of story that people would be interested in chatting about around the pub. I mean, we've already seen that, right? We saw Sam and Ted Sandyman chatting about giants up in the North Moors around the pub, right? You've got to think that if that conversation comes up, Frodo Took is going to be like, oh, giants, well, you know, let me tell you about this queer chap I met on the North Moors, right? I haven't seen any giants, but um, uh, but there's, there's this, right? So, that seems to me a little bit odd. And, uh, of course, as we know, this bit is going to get cut, right? And I can't help but wonder if the implausibility of Frodo's keep, Frodo Took's keeping this story to himself is one of the things that leads ultimately to its, uh, to its rejection. Um, okay. Now, another passage where I'm going to want your help. That I can understand, said Gildar. Half your heart wished to go, but the other half held you back, for its home was in the Shire, and its delight in bed and board and the voices of friends, and in the changing of the gentle seasons among the fields and trees. But since you are a hobbit, that half is the stronger, as it was even in Bilbo. What has made it surrender? Yes, I am an ordinary hobbit, and so I always shall be, I imagine, said Bingo. But a most unhobbit-like fate has been laid upon me. Then you are not an ordinary hobbit, said Gildor, for otherwise that could not be so. But the half that is plain hobbit will suffer much, I fear, from being forced to follow the other half, which is worthy of the strange fate, until it too becomes worthy, and yet remains hobbit. For that must be the purpose of your fate, or the purpose of that part of your fate which concerns you yourself." The hobbit half that loves the Shire is not to be despised, but it has to be trained, and to rediscover the changing seasons and voices of friends when they have been lost. When they have been lost, like I am at the end of that paragraph. Um, uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> Arthur says this tortured speech must evolve into I will not advise you <laughs> right I'm sure that several of you are thinking uh, are thinking that uh, uh, perhaps really it's best for elves not to give advice because holy cow when they really uncork it it gets uh, it's pretty hard to follow but um, uh, okay okay um, let's, um, let's, let's, let's go through this carefully here. Half your heart wish to go. So the half your heart business seems understandable enough, right? Um, that is, we've seen this, there he seems to be playing on the Hobbit theme, right? The, the token Baggins theme that we can see so clearly throughout the published Hobbit, right? So again, this seems to be a, a kind of a, uh, a sequely thing for Gildor to be talking about, right? Um, we know about this uh, divided heart of adventurous hobbits, right? But here is Gildor pointing out, of course, the difference between Frodo's situation and Bilbo's situation, but okay. So, half of his heart wished to go, but the other half held him back. So, the, the, the stay-at-home half of Bilbo's heart. Um, its home is in the Shire, 
and its delight in bed and board and the voices of friends. So it likes comfort and familiarity and the affection of friends, right? And the changing of the gentle seasons among the fields and trees, right? The love of the Shire itself. Okay, but since you are a hobbit, that half is the stronger as it was even in Bilbo. So Gildor's first question, why are you leaving? Right? What has led you to leave? What made the hobbit half of you surrender? Because I know you have that half. You're a hobbit, so you have that half. All hobbits have it, right? Um, and in all hobbits, that half is the stronger half. That half is more than half. So it's not mathematically 50%, but whatever. Anyway, that part of you is the stronger part. It's the stronger part in all hobbits, including Bilbo. Bilbo's bag inside is stronger than his took side, Gildor says, right? So something, something has to intervene in order to make your hobbit, your stay-at-home hobbit half, your Baggins half, to use the, which I shouldn't use, the hobbit terminology, because it's not the terminology that's being used here. Anyway, um, it, uh, there's something that has to overcome it, right? What made that half of you surrender? Now notice he... Um, <laughs> Sorry, I'm just seeing uh, Stephen Cover says, was Vizzini in The Princess Bride part elf? Um, <laughs> yeah, so I clearly cannot choose the one in front of you. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, James Stephen says that surrender was a strange word. Did Bilbo surrender when he went on his journey? Uh, well, no, James, Bilbo didn't surrender, but the Baggins half of him surrendered. Remember the took half one. Uh, we get that, you know, the, the took side had won, that line in chapter one of The Hobbit. Um, the, the took side wins when the Baggins side surrenders, right? Um, so there was something in Bilbo that made the Baggins side surrender at least briefly, even though it was the stronger, you know, uh, even in Bilbo. So he's asking, what in you has made, why has your took side won, right? What, why has your Hobbit... Um, why has your hobbit side, your hobbit heart, your dominant hobbit heart, surrendered? Bingo doesn't answer the question. <laughs> you guys are hilarious. You're distracting me here. Dennis uh, Rulebach says, I, I, like, I like less than half of you. <laughs> it's really good. I like less than half of you, half as well as you deserve. <laughs> That's very good. That's very good. Anyway, okay, okay, sorry. All right. <clears throat> Bingo doesn't answer the question, right? What has made it surrender? Yes, I'm an ordinary hobbit, and so I always shall be, I imagine. In fact, his answer seems to be, what, surrender? Nope, mm-mm. didn't surrender at all, right? But a most unhobbit like fate has been laid upon me, right? So, like, I mean, I've got to go, right? I don't want to go. Right? I didn't surrender. I was, I'm being dragged. I'm, I've been impressed. <laughs> right, Sarah? I mean, he almost seems to be saying it. I just still don't think that that's what impressed means in that scene. But but it's almost like what he's saying, right? It's like, I, I, um, I would paraphrase that line as, I have no choice. Right? An, a most unhobbit-like fate has been laid upon me. Since the fate laid upon me is unhobbit-like, I've been forced to abandon my hobbit-like side. Right? That half of me hasn't uh, surrendered. It has been dominated. It's been overcome, right? Um, 
Uh, okay. Which is interesting, right? No, he so he downplays his own choice. I didn't choose. I was just. There's nothing I could do. This fate has been laid upon me. Then you are. <laughs> now it gets difficult. Then you are not an ordinary hobbit," said Gildor. "For otherwise, that could not be so." Yeah. Okay. 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 I'm an ordinary hobbit, so he's saying, "Yeah, the hobbit half, the dominant half. That's me. I'm told I'm like a hundred percent. Yeah, bed, board, voices of friends, changing of the gentle seasons. That's me all the way, right? It's just like you know, unhobbit like fate. What can I do, right? Uh, and he says, "You're not an ordinary hobbit." Okay, so you say, Bingo, I'm a hundred percent ordinary hobbit with an unhobbit like fate put upon me. And Gildor says, If an unhobbit like fate has been laid upon you, then that proves that you're not actually an ordinary hobbit to begin with. For otherwise, that could not be so. That is, for otherwise, an unhobbit like fate would not have been laid upon you. This, I believe, Gildor, this is like a faith claim by Gildor. Gildor is, is saying that he does not believe that Providence would have laid an unhobbit-like fate upon him if he were, in fact, just an ordinary hobbit. So the fact that it's been laid upon you proves that you're not just ordinary. Okay. But the half that is plain hobbit... So, But he does have a plain hobbit half, right? He's not an ordinary hobbit, but he does have a still... Because all hobbits have that plain hobbit half. But the half that is plain hobbit will suffer much from being forced to follow the other half, which is worthy of the strange fate. So his other side, um, the non-plain hobbit side, the I'm just going to forget it. I'm just using the hobbit terminology, right? The Tookish side, right? Um, uh, the Tookish side is going to drag the other side along, the plain hobbit side, the bagged side along, right? And he's afraid, Gildor is afraid, that the other the plain hobbit half, the Baggins half, is going to suffer much from being forced to follow it. Notice how he concedes Bilbo's, or, sorry, Bingo's language about being forced, right? Having things laid upon him, not choosing for himself. But he splits it. Gildor splits it, right? Part of you has chosen. Because the Tookish side of you is not ordinary. You have a very unhobbit-like side, and that's why an unhobbit-like fate has been laid upon you, right? But you still have that plain hobbit side, and the unhobbit-like side of, of you is going to be dragging the plain hobbit side along with it, and it's going to get hurt. The plain hobbit side is going to get damaged by this. It's going to suffer much from being forced to follow it. So there is forcing going on, but it's not Bingo being forced by fate. It's his plain hobbit half being forced by the unhobbit half the worthy half, right? The half which is worthy of the strange fate. So it... So one half of Bingo's psyche is just going to damage the other half of Bingo's psyche? No. No, the suffering of the plain Hobbit half is going to be salutary suffering. You notice this? Um, It's going to suffer much from being forced to follow the other half until it too becomes worthy. So it's... It's also going to be brought up, right? He already has an unhobbit-like half. He his 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 Turkish side is very special, clearly. Gildor says, right? And it's going to drag the. It's going it, to. It, it is going to force the Baggins side along, the plain Hobbit side along, 
and it's going to get hurt. The plain hobbit side is going to get hurt. But through this, through that suffering, it too is going to become worthy and yet remain hobbit. This doesn't mean that he's going to become 100% unhobbit-like, that both halves will become unhobbit-like, and his plain, his plain hobbit half isn't going to die. It's going to be strengthened in the end, so that he will still have his unhobbit-like side, and he will have his hobbit side. Um, but his hobbit side is going to be transformed. It, too, will become worthy of the fate that has been laid upon him so that both halves of Bingo are going to end up contributing significantly to the fulfillment of his fate. Both the unhobbit-like side, which is what has led him into this fate, made him a candidate for this fate, and the plain hobbit side, which is going to come along and be transformed, but going to still play, going also to become worthy of that fate. Is this making any more sense at all? For that must be the purpose of your fate. For the, or the purpose of that part of your fate, which concerns you yourself, right? Okay, that sounds really complicated too, but I think that's actually relatively simple, right? Because, of course, Bingo's fate involves the fate of many, right? I mean, the, uh, Gildor seems to see pr- pretty clearly that he's got a crack of, you know, he's got the cracks of doom in his future, right? He's got a fiery mountain in his future, Um the fate of many is going to rest on uh, Bingo. But as far as the fate of you yourself are concerned, Bingo, right? Um, The purpose of your personal fate, the purpose of what's going to happen to you over the course of your quest is is exactly this, to make your hobbit half to... Your plain hobbit half will suffer, but then it too will become worthy and yet remain... worthy of your fate and yet remain hobbit. That's the purpose. That's why you are being dragged into this. That's what it has to do with you. It's not just what you're going to accomplish for others. This is how you personally are going to be impacted by it. The hobbit half that loves the Shire is not to be despised, but it has to be trained and to rediscover the changing seasons and voices of friends when they have been lost. And that, to me, is the most fascinating thing, right? So what does that look like? The plain hobbit side becoming worthy and yet remaining hobbit? right? Rediscovery, right? It's gonna, it's gonna lose all those things. Bed, board, the voices of friends, the gentle seasons among, the changing of the gentle seasons among the fields and trees. It's gonna lose all that. Think forward. I give you permission to do what I always tell you not to do in this class. Remember what's gonna happen in The Return of the King, right? Remember Frodo lying there on the slopes of Mount Doom, not able to remember the Shire, right? No memory of anything, any of the comfortable things of home, disease, he can't even remember them, right? He loses them almost entirely. The half of him that is plain hobbit does indeed suffer much, right? But what happens in the end, right? Or at least what Gildor is projecting as the end. The rediscovery of the changing seasons and voices of friends when they've been lost, I don't know for sure if I'm fully understanding this passage yet, but if I am, it sounds like Tolkien's vision for what's going to happen to Bingo's character from this vantage point is that he, too, ultimately is going to have a story which is kind of like 
Bilbo's. Remember the conversation, you know, Bilbo and Gandalf, Bilbo singing his song, wondering about how he's been changed and what things are going to be like now that he's come back home again uh, to the hill after his long journey. You know, what's going to happen when, I, when eyes that fire and, uh, and sword have seen and horrors in the halls of stone look again on... Uh, oh, I lost it. Look again on uh, something green and trees and hills they once have known. Um, anyway, <clears throat> um, Bill was wondering the same thing, what's going to happen to him. And he comes back and he's changed. And Gandalf says, oh, you know... Uh, what's happened to you, right? You're not the hobbit that you were. Bilbo comes back and he's changed, but his bag inside is in the end only enriched. That same pattern seems to be what Gildor is predicting of Bingo, for Bingo, here. Um, and, uh, but he, he states it rather more dramatically, right? Um, he has to rediscover the changing seasons and voices of friends when they have been lost. That could never really have been said of Bilbo at the end of The Hobbit, right? Clearly, he, Gildor, and Tolkien are already envisioning what's going to happen to Bingo is going to be worse than what happened to Bilbo. He's going to have a a more grievous adventure. Um, He's going to suffer more. And yet, in the end, what's going to happen at the end is recovery. Those of you who know on fairy stories, doesn't that sound like recovery? Discovering the cha- rediscovering the changing seasons and voices of friends when they have been lost, right? Um, in more than one sense, it sounds like Bingo is going to suffer, but he's going to recover through his suffering. He is going to achieve recovery, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Kimber uh, says at least Gildor has hope that Bingo will come out the other side, though changed, better than Gandalf's prediction of death. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, Exactly. Um, Yeah, now, of course, as many of you are pointing out, (laughs) Stephen Cover says gleefully, boy, is Gildor ever going to be proven wrong? Yeah, yeah, he will. Right in the end, but I don't think this is Gildor's uh, Gildor just not getting it. Right, rather I think this is Tolkien changing his mind. Um, as the story goes on, uh, once Bingo, who will finally become Frodo, uh, goes through everything that you know, w- when the story is actually written and we see how much the plain Hobbit side of Frodo has in fact suffered, um, we're going to end up with a Frodo who can't find healing. Um, so that I think is seems to be the conclusion that Tolkien is going to be kind of forced to by the events of the story as they eventually work out. But remember how little Tolkien foresees of the end of this story, right? Um, how, remember, too, how close he thought he was to the end of the story. He thought he was halfway there when they got to Rivendell, right? I mean, he thinks it's only, there's only just like, you know, a, a handful of more chapters and we're done, right? He clearly, he just, he does not foresee um, what's going to happen on the way. So, when he, and when he gets there, he's going to change his mind about what it looks like for, for, for Bingo or for Frodo. Um, Tony Mead um, 
uh, and James Lieback are both thinking of Sam, uh, Tony suggests that uh, what Gildor is saying will become true of Sam, though. Um, yeah, that, I think that's... that. You, you could argue that. You could argue that this circuitous paragraph uh, does end up describing what happens to Sam, to some extent. Um, yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, good, good. Um, okay. All right, well, I feel better about that paragraph. I, I find that paragraph a real, uh, a real puzzle. Uh, but I feel a little bit better. Thanks for letting me work it through there. Um, yeah, <clears throat> Sarah Lagarde says, uh, having taken the uh, John Garth's course at Signum about uh, Tolkien's wars in Middle-earth, uh, she wonders if Gildor's wisdom is gleaned from Tolkien's experience in World War One to some degree. I think, Sarah, it's hard to... I don't think we can ever really forget that. I mean, it is a thing always to keep in mind. I, I of course, I tend to be very resistant to any simple application of Tolkien's life experience to the text. That is the kind of application where people kind of slip into drawing an equal sign between things, right? Um, but certainly, uh, Sarah, you're absent. I mean, I think it's inescapable when you think about, you know, um, where is Tolkien getting this stuff? You know, when he's talking about going through experiences and how going through these really difficult and sacrificial experiences um, and how they change you and what kind of effect they have on you. Um, yeah, I mean, that's his framework, right? That's his own experience with this. We know he has had um, exactly that kind of experience himself. So, you know, in as much as he is uh, speaking of what he has seen and learned himself, uh, you, you have to think that that's where he... That, that's where he learned it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, cool. All right, uh, good. More advice from Gildar. If there are any whom you can wholly trust and who are willing to share your peril, take them with you. They will protect you. I think it likely that your three companions have already helped you to escape. The riders did not know that they were with you and their presence has for the time being confused the scent. This, of course, is again Gildar being a great deal more forthcoming than he's going to be eventually uh, in the published text. Um, but I love this. Um, I love this because this seems to me to give a glimpse of, like, here's uh, Frodo's hobbit companions who are not Sam, fulfilling their ultimate destiny from day one, right? Their ultimate destiny being to serve no obvious purpose and yet to end up just by being in the places where they are um, uh, saving the day, like, you know, making it possible for the good guys to win and, uh, you know, ending up bringing about uh, great good that they don't intend or understand. That's basically what Merry and Pippin's job is uh, all the way through, right? Um, and, um, and to see that the 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 kind of the the germ of that idea here, right? They don't know what they're you know you didn't do it on purpose, they didn't do it on purpose, but they've already helped you to escape, right? Um, they've already saved you, even though none of you planned it. It's like, yep, that's uh, straight up uh, straight up Hobbit. Now, Ben, better. I, I was thinking the same thing. I had the same question when reading this. Like the. Uh, 
do the writers already know Bingo's scent? Um, like they they actually can tell his scent, or are they smelling? Uh, are they smelling the ring? Or I don't know, Ben. I mean, it he does make it sound like the writer knows Bingo's scent. Um, <clears throat> of course, if it is literally his scent, um, then you know. I mean, if if they're sniffing him like a dog sniffs after something, and by the way, I don't take that for granted. Um, we're told that the writers don't interact with the world in the same way that normal people do, which means they don't see like normal people see. I am willing to believe that they don't smell like normal people smell either. Um, that they're not smelling the scent, again, that they're not smelling the scent of something in the same way that a dog would be selling, smelling the scent of something. What it is that they have to go by, how it is they can trace Baggins by something like scent, whether the scent of the ring is uh, is something or um, yeah, Timothy Fisher suggesting maybe they uh, stole one of his boots from outside his door, uh, just like in the Hand of the Baskervilles. Well, see, he was right there on the hill, right? So it's not impossible that he could have done something like that. Um, but again, I don't think it's necessarily a literal scent issue. Um, But I don't know what else it is exactly either. I don't think it can be just a scenting of the ring, because if they're just scenting the ring, then there's no way that the other hobbits would throw him off. They don't have a ring, right? So how could they possibly throw them, throw him off uh, his trail if, uh, if, if, if that's the case? So, um, yeah. Well, no, see, Tony, I don't think it's completely metaphorical, like throw them off the scent, um... Uh, has confused the scent in the sense of like the chase in general because they uh, um, because of the sniffing right we do have literal sniffing uh, going on and being pretty heavily emphasized so um, there's they're they're actually sniffing but remember they also look around like the hoods look around and they're not actually seeing either in the same way so you know um, there's something approximating senses but maybe not just literally senses. Um, Okay, let's keep going. More mysteries, said Bingo. How can a ring that makes me invisible help a black rider to find me? I will answer only this, said Gildar. The ring came in the beginning from the enemy and was not made to delude his servants. That's a really good answer, I kind of think. But Bilbo used his ring to escape from goblins and evil creatures, said Bingo. Black riders are not goblins, said the elf. Ask no more of me, but my heart forebodes that ere all is ended. You, Bingo, son of Drogo, will know more of these fell things than Gildor and Glorian. May Elbereth protect you. I love how Bingo's first theory is that, um, uh, his first theory is that the ring, um, it, when, when Gildor says, the ring was not made to delude his servants. Um, Bingo's first interpretation of that is that the ring is is oriented based on alignment, almost like in Dungeons and Dragons, right? Like, so this ring makes you invisible uh, to it, it. It makes you invisible to good and neutral things, but not to evil things, right? And so Bingo, because that, that seems to be what Bingo is suggesting, right? But but goblins and other evil creatures couldn't see him. So how is it possible that it's not made to delude the servants of the enemy, right? And the elf is like, dude, no, it's not about the fact that they're evil. Right. Um, 
evilness is not what makes what exposes the ring wearer to uh to 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 viewers it's he doesn't explain but it's clearly about the nature of the wraiths right um so uh so okay yeah so here's him kind of coming close to it but i love this and and of course think remember this um from Ask No More of Me, the end of this paragraph is in the published text, right? This setup coming before it kind of explains it a little bit more. Um, in the published text, Gildor is real quick to say Ask No More of Me, right? That comes near the beginning of this exchange. Uh, they have much more exchange. Uh, he gets as far as black riders are not goblins, but I am not going to explain the difference there. I have to admit, um, in this draft, I have to expected him to. Right, because remember, Tolkien's just been working out that whole wraith world thing, and I was kind of expecting that to, you know, Gildor to come up with the like the other side and and everything that I I, I thought he might actually explain uh, all that stuff here, um, but it um, turns out it turns out he didn't do that. Um, so okay, all right. Now, let's talk about Farmer Maggot. I, I, I quoted long passages. Um, we don't have to spend that much time. I hope to get through them all, actually, uh, still before the end of class. But Farmer Maggot, right? Wow. So keep in mind that Tolkien has written two versions of Chapter 4. One version of Chapter 4 is pretty much identical with the published text. So we have the Farmer Maggot that we all know and love. Then we have the alternate universe Farmer Maggot, right? So we have the two different versions of the story, two 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 now independent uh, versions of this story, um, and the thing, <laughs> the thing that we have to, uh, um, the thing uh, Arthur thinks that the Savage Maggot sounds like the title of a movie that they would uh, feature on Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Um, we have to distance ourselves from the published maggot. So let's acknowledge, let's take comfort in the fact that the published farmer maggot that we all know and love is there, right? Tolkien is, has conceived of him. We, we, we've, he's shifted the kind of dopey farmer maggot that we got in the first draft into the, the much cooler, wiser, fun farmer maggot, friend of, future friend of Tom Bombadil that we get in, uh, uh, in the later uh, story, the published story, right? But then we have the alternate universe, Farmer Maggot. That's just it, said Bingo. I used to trespass on his land when I was a youngster at Bucklebury. His fields used to grow the best mushrooms. I killed one of his dogs once. I broke its head with a heavy stone. A lucky shot, for I was terrified, and I believe it would have mauled me. He beat me and told me he would kill me next time I put a foot over his boundaries. I'd kill you now, he said, if you were not Mr. Rory's nephew. More's the pity and shame to the brandy bucks. But that's long ago, said Frodo. He won't kill Mr. Bingo Baggins, late of Bag End, because of his misdeeds when he was one of the many young rascals of Brandy Hall, even if he remembers, even if he remembers about it. I don't fancy Maggot is a good forgetter, said Bingo, especially not where his dogs are concerned. They used to say that he loved his dogs more than his children. And Bilbo told me, only a year or two before he left the Shire, that he was once down this way and called at the farm to get a bite and drink. When he gave his name, old Maggot ordered him off. I'll have no baggins over my doorstep. Over my doorstep, A lot of thievish, murderous rascals. You get back where you belong, he said, and threatened him with a stick. 
He's shaken his fist at me if we passed on the road many a time since. Um. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so we've got Bingo killing a dog with a thrown rock. Clearly, right? We know that hobbits are good at this. Like, like killing the spiders in Markwood. Um, and open death threats, right? Um, uh, he would have killed him if he weren't Mr. Rory's nephew, and he will kill him the next time he crosses onto, onto his boundary. So, um, the questions I want to keep asking here. Uh, this is kind of a startling, startlingly violent version of the story, right? How does this work? I don't think that Tolkien would have maintained and developed this parallel story of Farmer Maggot if it didn't work at all, right? So let's get, forget about the published Maggot entirely. Forget about the first draft. This is what comes next, right? So we've escaped from the Black Riders, we've decided to make a shortcut, we end up near Farmer Maggot's land, and this is the story that we hear. Why? What role does it play? How does it fit? What kind of story are we in? What does it sound like? Who does it remind you of? Who does he remind you of? Anyone? This time through, Farmer Maggot reminded me of somebody that we all know and love. The line that gave it away was, they used to say that he loved his dogs more than his children. Interesting. Arthur and Tony both said Bill Fernie. No, he doesn't sound like Bill Fernie. Bill Fernie neglects and abuses his animals, right? He's Farmer Maggot's all about his animals. He loves them more than his children. Got it, Carita. Bjorn! That's almost exactly the same thing the Hobbit says about Bjorn. Um, about his love for his animals, right? Uh, and how they'd better not mistreat Bjorn's animals while they're there. Uh, and Bjorn could kill them at any minute, right? And Bilbo actively is afraid that he's going to come back and eat them, right? Um, so, uh, um, exactly. Bjorn loves his animals like his children, Veronica. Exactly. Farmer Maggot loves them more than, he has actual children, unlike Bjorn, and loves his dogs even more than they, uh, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, good, John Conwell was thinking of, uh, of, of, of Bjorn as well. Um, so, uh, exactly, Karita, don't hurt the ponies or else. Remember Gandalf being like, when, when Thorin says, hey, why don't we keep the ponies and ride them into Mirkwood? And Gandalf is like, do you have any idea what would happen to you if you did that, right? Um, I mean, the, 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 the scene of slaughter that Gandalf is implying would happen, right? Bjorn in bear's form is going to come after you, uh, and it's going to be like Jurassic Park inside Mirkwood uh, and, and, until we bring the... Uh, the ponies back home and wash the bloodstains off them. So, I mean, that's that's clearly what is in the offing there. Um, with a so now, no, no, Stephen, I'm not actually suggesting that Farmer Maggot is a skin changer. I'm just saying his ferocity, uh, the the idea of this wild, savage, violent figure uh, who is dangerous uh, and rude to strangers. Um, and untrustworthy, you know, I mean, he's a bad enemy, right? Um, but a good friend, and if you can get on his good side, and he might even help you. Um, but I mean, th- there's there's some parallels here, right? Um, especially, like, 
you're on your journey and you're being chased by the bad guys and you've barely escaped and you uh, need help, right? And you're lost in the woods, right? Or you're lost in the wilderness. Again, kind of like Bjorn, right? So th- there's there are certain other parallels in that way um, with, uh, um, with Bjorn, I think, um, in The Hobbit. Um, so, yeah, but... I'm not trying to say they're exactly the same, just suggesting a kind of parallel here. So we have Farmer Maggot kind of filling that role, but obviously the, it's, this is different, right? Um, uh, the main difference, of course, is that Gandalf warns the dwarves, right? Um, the guy that we're going to meet is dangerous, and he's, got a, he's famous for having a really bad temper, right? So we have to be very careful about how we approach him. And then later, after they've earned Bjorn's trust, Gandalf comes back and says, P.S. don't cross him and you better make sure you keep your word to him or else, you know, you don't even want to think about what's going to happen to you. Um, but the, the, but this is, the, the situation with Farmer Maggot and Bingo is very different, right? Um, Farmer Maggot is a threat to Bingo. There's, there's no, like, oh, it's kind of chancy, but, you know, he's a dangerous enemy, but a good friend, right? That's not Farmer Maggot, right? He's a good friend to some, but a bad enemy to others, and he is a bad enemy to Bingo Baggins, right? Um, This is... Farmer Maggot has become an adventure, right? Um, He's become an... You know, so here's, here's Bingo having a really bad day. The Black Riders are chasing him and they're trying to get away, so they're taking this shortcut across the fields in order to try to escape from the Riders that they know are searching for him on the road. And then, oh my gosh, he's at Farmer Maggot's house. The crazy old coot who's going to kill him if he comes onto his land again, right? And here's Frodo like, surely you're... You know, Frodo took, surely you're over... You know, you're exaggerating, right? You're overstating the case. He's not actually going to kill you. He probably doesn't even remember. And Bingo's like, oh, yes, he does, right? He shakes his fist at me, right? He threatened to take a stick to Bilbo just because he was a Baggins, right? He is totally not forgotten. Um, and, yeah, Tony uh, Tony points out this. He says, this, this story makes the Shire seem a bit less murder-free, right? Yes, that remarkable statement that Frodo makes in The Return of the King, uh, that no hobbit has ever killed another hobbit in the Shire uh, on purpose before. Um, it does become a little harder to believe, doesn't it, Tony, in this uh, particular environment? Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah, Stephen Cover says, Farmer Maggot's not afraid to be the first. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, no, it's even worse, right? Remember, here's the alternate version. This, this, this is, that's the mild version. Here's the even worse version uh, that, uh, that, that Tolkien wrote and considered but, but canceled. We climbed through a hedge. This is Bingo talking about himself and Bilbo one day, tramping around, getting lost in the fog, right? They have no idea, so they're minding their own business, right? Um, get, they get lost in the fog and end up in Farmer Maggot's land entirely by accident. We climbed through a hedge and found ourselves in a garden, and Maggot found us. He set a great dog on us, more like a wolf. I fell down with the dog over me, and Bilbo broke its head with that thick stick of his. His walking stick that he was going to exchange for a sword? He killed the dog. He kills Farmer Maggot's dog with it to save Bingo's life, because he's about to savage Bingo on the ground, right? Okay, Maggot was violent. He is a strong fellow, and while Bilbo was trying to explain who we were and how we came to be there, he picked him up and flung him over the hedge into a ditch. Then he picked me up and had a good look at me. He recognized me as one of the Brandybuck clan, though I had not been to his farm since I was a youngster. 
I was going to break your neck, he said, and I will yet, whether you be Mr. Rory's nephew or not, if I catch you round here again. Get out before I do you an injury. He dropped me over the hedge on top of Bilbo. Bilbo got up and said, I shall come around next time with something sharper than a stick. He's going to exchange his walking stick for his sword. Neither you nor your dogs would be any loss to the countryside. Whoa, fighting words, Bilbo. Uh, Maggot laughed. I have a weapon or two myself, he said, and next time you kill one of my dogs, I'll kill you. Be off now, or I'll kill you tonight. Wow. Wow. Um... Whew, yeah. So, Maggot is even more savage, right? They were totally minor, at least in the first one, right? Uh, Bingo's obviously in the wrong, right? Bingo is trespassing, um, and not to, he's trespassing with mouths aforethought, right? He's trespassing in order to poach Farmer Maggot's mushrooms. So, uh, Farmer Maggot is, is in this way totally justified to set his dog on the trespasser who's stealing from him, right? Uh, the thieving rascal. Uh, and then Bingo kills his dog, admittedly in self-defense, right? But again, the dog was doing his job and Bingo was in the wrong. So uh, Farmer Maggot's anger, both because Bingo was in the wrong and stealing from him and caught in the act, and because on top of that he then kills his dog, you can see why Farmer Maggot is so mad and uh, the uh, threat of death is, like, tough but fair under the circumstances, right? I mean, it's... it's uh, um, this is totally different, right? This farmer maggot is just is just off his rocker, right? I mean, like people come minding their own business, accidentally wander into his land, and his dog attacks them. The death of the dog—we still have the death of a dog involved here, right? But um, Bilbo's slaying of the dog is downright heroic under the circumstances. Uh, because they've been attacked without warning, they've been, uh, you know, so they've been they've been assaulted by this dog when they are in fact perfectly innocent, and uh, uh, and the dog is about to savage Bingo, so he kills it, and then you know we get the death threats and the, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Tim Fisher says it's a, it's a good thing that Peter Jackson probably never read this version <laughs> of the story. <laughs> Yeah, he might not have caught Farmer Maggot, uh, 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 Tim, if he if he had. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, um, so yeah, uh, 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 Maggot is this is this is this is so again, but clearly in this case even more than in the other. Right, the in the first in the in in the first version, he's Bjorn like in his unpredictability and danger. Right, though. Already he's an, as a settled enemy of Bingo's, um, and for good reason. In this version, he's simply a peril. Like, you know, a, he's just like a monster that you come across, um, you know, whose lair you don't want to accidentally wander near lest he pounce out and eat you. Um, I mean, that's the kind of monster that Maggot seems to be, in the, you know, such that Bilbo is thinking of taking it upon himself to to come and slay the ogre, right, that is uh, terrorizing the countryside here. Neither you nor your dogs would be any loss to the countryside. Um, so, uh, um, <laughs> Brandon says, his name was Farmer Maggot, and he almost deserved it. Um, yes, exactly. Thinking, of course, of the uh, the wonderful first sentence of the, Dawn, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, right? There, there once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. 
Um, yes, yes. Um, so, okay. But, but again, in either case, um, either, either, you know, um, uh, 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 Savage Maggot A, you know, either Savage Maggot or Crazy Maggot is how I would call these two. Now, Crazy Maggot goes away. Um, he, 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 he pitches this idea with Bilbo and the walking stick and everything. So, um, you know, he's, he's going to dial it back to Savage Maggot instead of Crazy Maggot. But, um, but in either case, we have, um, we have a legitimate adventure, right? Um, and this is like one thing falling quickly upon another, right? We escape. This, notice, notice what this also kind of feels like out of the frying pan into the fire, right? Um, escaping goblins to be caught by wolves, says Bilbo, right? I mean, bingo could be like escaping black riders to be caught by maggot. Uh, that, that seems to be the kind of situation here. Okay. Bingo lagged behind. Suddenly, as they drew nearer, a terrific bang and barking broke out, and a loud voice was heard shouting, Grip! Fang! Wolf! Go on, lads! Go on! This was too much for Bingo. He slipped on the ring and vanished. It can't do any harm this once, he thought. I am sure Bilbo would have done the same. He was only just in time. The gate opened, and three huge dogs came pelting out into the lane and dashed towards the travelers. Bingo puts on the ring. The thing that I notice here, notice the rationale. It can't do any harm this once. I'm sure Bilbo would have done the same, right? That sounds like the ring, right? Um, this sounds like the kind of rationalization that the ring puts into Bingo slash Frodo's mind on numerous occasions during the first portions of this, you know, during the journey from the Shire to Rivendell, right? So this fits. Um, in the first version, Bingo put on his ring mostly just to play a joke on Farmer Maggot. Um, now he's in deadly peril, right? He's he, we we know this guy, Farmer Maggot, right? He'd soon kill you as look at you. So, and he's calling, he's setting his dogs on them, right? He's not just calling up his dogs to come and support him, right? He is unleashing his dogs on them. Go on, lads, go on, right? This is, um, uh, and yes, as Nick Marazzo points out, notice he puts on the ring and leaves his companions in danger. Exactly, Nick, just like he's tempted to do in the barrow, right? He resists in the barrow, but he's tempted to do the same thing. Put the ring on to save yourself and leave your companions in danger. Um, so yeah, I think that we, we it, it's interesting to see that his use of the ring fits this is another serious peril. So Tolkien, and, and, and going away from good, wholesome farmer maggot that we get in the published version to savage maggot, um, we're simply placing Frodo into yet another dangerous situation, deadly situation, where he's tempted to use the ring and gives in to that temptation. So, okay, all right. Um, maggot's commentary on their arrival. 
"'Then the road would have served you better,' said the farmer. "'But you and Mr. Mary have my leave to walk on my land "'as long as you do no damage.' "'This is, of course, Frodo Toki speaking to. "'Not like those thievish folk from way back west, begging your pardon. "'I was forgetting you were a took by name, "'and only half a brandy buck, as you might say. "'But you aren't a Baggins, or you'd not be inside here. "'That Mr. Bingo Baggins, he killed one of my dogs once he did. "'It's more than thirty years ago, but I haven't forgotten it, "'and I'll remind him of it sharp, too, if he ever dares to come round here. "'I hear tell that he is coming back to live in Buckland. More's the pity. I can't think why the Brandy Bucks allow it. Okay, so, uh, yes, uh, not a not a quick forgetter, right? He's uh, uh, definitely, uh, uh, Bingo was right about that. Um, so, in their initial conversation here, we seem to have the, uh, the confirmation, right, of the danger that Bingo felt that he was in. So, the question I keep coming back to throughout this whole scene, how are we supposed to feel about Bingo's putting on the ring, right? I mean, it's clearly the wrong thing to do. He shouldn't put on the ring. The rationalization by itself sort of suggests that, but it's in the context of, like, do we see the ring getting some hold, right? We see the ring influencing him, and this is this is uh, certainly in this story a very early example of how we see the ring influencing Bingo. But as the scene goes on, what do we get from this, right? So what should have happened? What should they have done? Um, keep going. Odo and Frodo sat and stared. The, he's just done the mug of beer thing, right? A farmer maggot was able to pick up another mug of beer, and, the, and, and Bingo has picked it up and, and drunk it, so they've seen the, 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 the flagon, the, the beer jug rise into the air and tip and drain itself. Odo and Frodo sat and stared. Sam looked anxious and worried. "'You do not ask me to have a bite or a sup,' said a voice, coming apparently from the middle of the room. Farmer Maggot backed towards the fireplace. His wife screamed. "'And that's a pity,' went on the voice, which Frodo, to his bewilderment, recognized as Bingo's. "'Because I like your beer. But don't boast again that no Baggins will ever come inside your house. There's one inside now. A thievish Baggins. A very angry Baggins.' There was a pause. In fact, bingo! The voice suddenly yelled just by the farmer's ear. At the same time, something gave him a push in the waistcoat, and he fell over with a crash among the fire irons. He sat up again just in time to see his own hat leave the settle where he had thrown it down and sail out of the door, which opened to let it pass. Hi! Here! yelled the farmer, leaping to his feet. Hey! Grip! Fang! Wolf! At that, the hat went off at a great speed towards the gate, but as the farmer ran after it, it came sailing back through the air and fell at his feet. He picked it up gingerly and looked at it in astonishment. Um... What's going on here? Why, in this context of this story... Would Bingo do this? I mean... Don't cause talk, Gandalf has suggested, and that seems very sensible, right? Farmer Maggot has just said that a black rider is there just before they showed up, right? Asking for baggins. Um, he's going to do something like to cause a sensation... Right, surely Farmer Maggot is going to t- not that Farmer Maggot. This Farmer Maggot is likely to have very many friends, but um, uh, yeah, Karita saying it seems awfully petty, right? I mean, it seems like Bingo's being a jerk. 
Um, I agree. It does seem petty. He's taking a kind of vengeance on him, right? Now, remember, the uh, self-drinking beer flagon trick uh, and the... What, didn't he also do some? Did he do something with his hat, or was it just the beer? I think it was just the beer in the first draft. I'm forgetting now. Um, it was all in the spirit of fun. He was just playing a joke on Farmer Maggot, right? And afterwards, you know, Odo and Frodo were like, dude, you shouldn't have done that. That was, that was mean, right? Um, they were being nice to us. Why'd you, why'd you go and play a joke like that? And he's just being mischievous, right? But remember, in the old story, that was a good thing in its way, right? To use the ring in order to make jokes is a way to resist the ring. It's, that's, that's, that's the best way to use the ring. It's an almost therapeutic way to use the ring. It is the Gandalf-approved use of the ring to play jokes on people, right? That's totally okay. Here, it's not totally okay anymore, right? Um... I mean, I don't think it's, it's it's the idea that the ring is it's okay to ring the to use the ring even in jest has already been undermined explicitly by Gandalf, right? I mean, he's already said you know to use it even in jest, right? So he he's kind of shut off that loophole. It's like so it's no longer an exception to the rule, right? Um, but what's more, that even if it were better to use it in jest than to use it for other things like stabbing people or whatever, um, it's still obviously that. That would still be 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 clearly trumped by the fact that you can't. You gotta keep it secret, right? Don't cause a fuss. There are black riders. Don't use it, right? I mean, Gandalf told him not to use it before he left. Gildor just told him not to use it. Now again, you can say, hey, his life's in danger. He gives in. You know, it happens. It happens to Frodo in the published text too, that he makes unwise decisions or almost makes unwise decisions. But you know. I had sympathy for him. I was willing to kind of, you know, it was it was clearly a fault, but a but a minor fault, right? Um, when he put on the the ring when the dogs were about to come pelting out of the gate and 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 pounce on them, right? Um, that was at least understandable. Him not only keeping it on, but using the ring to take his revenge, in a sense on Farmer Maggot, right? Um, A very angry Baggins, right? It's hard to think that's anything like okay. In fact, it becomes almost inexplicable. Um, uh, (laughs) Stephen says this scene almost has me rooting for Farmer Maggot. Yeah. Um, Now, see, if you embrace... I think, honestly, part of what it's hard for me to totally leave behind the... I mean, my affection for Farmer Maggot runs too deep to be completely overturned, right? I can't ignore it. Uh, I, 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 I can't fight the love that I have for Farmer Maggot, and so I, always, I have some sympathy with him. If we think about Savage Maggot, and especially about Crazy Maggot, if that was the only Farmer Maggot we ever knew, we wouldn't have as much sympathy with him, Right? I mean, he would uh, clearly, I think, be um, more like a fairy tale ogre, right? 
Um, and that makes Bingo's actions sound more, have more of the tone of, like, Jack the Giant Killer than it does of just a uh, sort of an arrogant jerk. Um, but, so I think that we, we would, and it's clear that that's how Christopher took it. Um, that is, young Christopher. Um, and I, I know, I, 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 you know, James Leback points out he's frightening the women folk. It's still not okay. Uh, I get it. I get it. Um, yeah, I still think this is troublesome. Um, troublesome in every way. Troublesome as, like, if, if given what we've been told about the ring already, you'd have to think this is a bad sign. Putting it on at all was a bad sign. To put it on and then use it like this... Has got you, joke or no joke, that's got to be a bad sign. And then, of course, there's the simple practice. I mean, how far away is that Black Rider gone by now, right? And he's having the ring on and keeping it on for a long time and using it in this way, running around, throwing hats and whatever. It's, um, it's, it's, uh, um, hard to understand how that doesn't backfire. Um, yeah, Tony says this kind of this does seem like it would have to fall into the category of mean wickedness, uh, right? Yeah, well, I mean, see, like it's Farmer Maggot who's wicked, right? This is just the sticking it to the wicked guy. <laughs> still not buying it, right? I can tell you guys are still not buying it. But um, well, let's look at Christopher's comment here. In the margin of the manuscript, my father wrote. Christopher queries, why was not Hat invisible if Bingo's clothes were? The story must have been that Bingo was actually wearing Maggot's hat, for otherwise the objection seems easily answered, that the hat was an object external to the wearer of the ring just as much as the beer mug or anything else would be, whatever its purpose. Clearly, a subtle question arises if the ring is put to such uses, a question my father sidestepped by substituting the jug. I was greatly delighted by the story of Bingo's turning the tables on Farmer Maggot, and while I retain now only a dim half-memory, I believe I was much opposed to its loss, which may perhaps explain in my father's retaining it after it had become apparent that it introduced serious difficulties. Um, so, Christopher, young Christopher loved this scene. Um, and Christopher himself, the adult uh, and increasingly aged Christopher, admits he thinks that his dad probably kept this alternate version of Chapter 4 alive, you know, as a sort of parallel possibility in play because Christopher himself liked it so much. Um, and again, I think I think that Christopher's reaction seems to shows he was clearly as, you know, when he was young, was clearly uh, reading this like a fairy tale, right? Like Jack the Giant Killer and uh, you know, sticking it to the mean old giants. And, um, and again, I think it's perfectly possible to read it that way. But it's hard to make... If, if it were on its own, right? You might not like it, but it would fit within that tradition. Um, but it's hard 
to fit it within what we've been told about the ring and the need for secrecy and everything else. Not to mention the whole central deal that Christopher makes of it, right? I mean, the two objections that... Christopher doesn't talk about any of the things we've been talking about, right? He's not talking about whether what, what Bingo is doing is, a wick, is, is you know, counts as mean wickedness. What he's talking about are two things. A, the invisibility question, right? If he's wearing the hat, why doesn't the hat become invisible? which apparently he objected to even in his youth, right? Um, but, um, but, 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 yeah, it's, uh, um, that bothers me a good deal less. Or that is to say, the idea of that ex- objects external to the wearer of the ring don't become invisible doesn't even seem to me obvious. We don't get anything like that in The Hobbit. The only thing that Bilbo ever picks up while he's already invisible are the stones that he throws at the, at the, um, at the spiders. And we don't know whether or not they're invisible when he's... Do the spiders see a stone levitate off the ground and then come hissing towards them? Um, it's, uh, you know, I just... Um, we don't even really know. It's it's not even clearly to me established. But frankly, I, I find that one of the least interesting questions about this passage. Like, why didn't the hat become invisible? Uh, um, the spiders do see Sting... Bilbo thinks that he will be revealed by the glow of the sword when he's invisible and when the sword is glowing. But I don't think they do see Sting. Do they? I'd have to go back and look at that. I don't remember very clearly if they see the sword or if they just see it stabbing things. Um, but uh, anyway, <clears throat> point is again, as I said, to me this is not the pressing question here. Um, the other larger plot question that Christopher focuses on throughout this whole section is the question of who knows about the ring and how much. Right? He's much more worried about Odo and Frodo than he's worried about Farmer Maggot. Right? Um, but, um, that, uh, that seems to me much less concerning than, yeah, the question of how, how Gollumish is, uh, is Bingo's behavior here. Um, at the end of the day, we don't have to worry about it too much. This gets left aside. Um, the reason I think it's worthwhile looking at is, first of all, I'm interested in it as both the Bjorn parallel and the the sort of the fairy tale element, right? This idea of sort of adding this kind of fairy tale ogre, this other danger that, to the way that think about the you know the gentle changing of the seasons and your love for the Shire stuff that he was talking about with Gildor in the previous chapter, and that immediately translates in the next chapter to one of the indigenous horrors of the Shire, right? The farmer maggot, the 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 really mean ogre guy, um, and that to me is kind of an interesting contrast, actually, right? That we see these dangers, the dangers from outside the Shire in the Black Riders, and the dangers from within the Shire in Farmer Maggot and and uh, Bingo, kind of caught between the both of them in and out of the uh, frying pan into the fire situation. That interests me about this. That that Tolkien was considering um, taking the story there. Um, the fact that he could even entertain these ideas about Bingo doing this says to me something about the ring. That first moment, right, that rationalization that we get sounds like a ring temptation. This doesn't. Yeah, I agree with you guys that it's kind of Gollumish behavior, uh, you could say, but it's not exactly Gollumish behavior. It's it's kind of mean-spirited. I, 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 I'm not 
trying to defend it. But it's not like prying into secrets for your own advantage and, and like murdering folks and stealing things. It's not it's it's not like that. It's not like stabbing the vile creature when you have the chance. It's um there is a, a fundamentally different a fundamental difference, I think, between what Bingo's doing here, even if you don't like it, and what Gollum did with the ring. But um but what kind of bothers me more is the shift in tone. This is too much like the first draft. This is too much like how Bingo acted with the ring when he didn't know that the ring was a big deal, right? When even Tolkien himself didn't know that the ring was the ruling ring. Um, it's hard to imagine that even a Bingo who has given in to temptation and put on the ring is going to then indulge in this kind of nonsense, right? Um, that he puts it on when the dogs are coming, I can understand. And that fits. This kind of behavior doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit the genre that we're in. It doesn't fit the backstory that we've gotten. It doesn't fit the headspace that Bingo is in when talking to, to Gildor and hiding from the Black Riders. Um, again, that he would panic when he thought his life was at risk and put on the ring to save his life makes sense. That he would just lose his head and start playing wild pranks with the ring under the circumstances with the Black Riders still like half a mile away doesn't make sense. Um, and that, for me, at the end of the day, is really the biggest problem I have with it, I think. Though, again, I agree with you. Um, I don't like the spirit of this thing any more than uh, uh, any more than um, uh, than you guys do. Alright. Um, that's me getting through all my slides. So, uh, so, so next time. Alright. Um, I'm going to be... I, I was trying to have the schedule official, a new schedule ready. I told you my deadline. Um, I want to have an official new schedule ready. I haven't totally finished it. We're t- we're gonna uh, we're gonna. Fi- I would like to. We're definitely do. There's one more chapter in uh, uh, in phase. In, oh no, yeah, yeah. There's one more chapter in the second phase. We're gonna we're gonna do that, uh, and then we're gonna move on to the third phase next time. So I'm gonna try to do the next two chapters again. Um, chapter 18 and 19 from so the the end of the second phase and the beginning of the third phase that's the goal for next week uh, just so that you can be prepared so um, thanks very much everybody for joining me again tonight and I will see you guys next week bye now <laughs>